Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, rape, murder, sex work, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On September 10, 1921, America woke up to a series of headlines the likes of which it had never seen before. Arbuckle faces first-degree murder charges. Fatty facing murder trial. Get Roscoe is deathbed plea. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, one of the most famous movie stars, had just become the scapegoat for everything that was wrong with Jazz Age Hollywood. Drinking, partying, sex, and now murder. As the papers dragged him through the mud, and thousands of Americans boycotted his films, the studios scrambled to distance themselves from Arbuckle's sinking career. After three trials, Arbuckle was deemed not guilty. But by then, it was already too late. His career and his life were ruined. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. This week, we'll take a look at one of Hollywood's earliest scandals, the death of Virginia Rapay and subsequent fall of actor Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Despite there being almost no factual evidence that Arbuckle had caused the death of Virginia Rappe, the papers ran with the story immediately. People all over the country voiced outrage at Arbuckle and Hollywood as a whole, boycotting motion pictures entirely. Studios scrambled to protect their businesses at any cost, even if it meant throwing one of their biggest stars to the wolves. In 1921, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was the biggest name in the global film industry, surpassing even his legendary colleague, Charlie Chaplin. Since beginning his silent film career in the early 1910s, Arbuckle had starred in over 150 movies and directed another 78. Not even 30 years old, he was already a comedy legend. 
He consistently worked alongside other early film stars, including Buster Keaton, Mabel Normand, and Harold Lloyd. His success was in part due to his work ethic. Arbuckle worked long hours, did all sorts of stunts, and pushed himself and the capabilities of the film industry to their limits. In 1919, all that hard work paid off. Paramount offered Arbuckle a million-dollar contract, the very first in the industry. The contract was financially generous, but incredibly demanding. Over the next 21 months, Arbuckle starred in a staggering nine feature-length films. By the end of it, he was mentally and physically exhausted. As Arbuckle finished his contract, Paramount was gearing up to launch a slew of his work and wanted him to appear in Paramount Week, a seven-day festival over Labor Day week in 1921. Arbuckle was supposed to lead a parade through Los Angeles in his famous $34,000 car to entertain fans, as well as attend film screenings and perform comedy. From a PR standpoint, it was a great idea. However, Arbuckle refused. He was exhausted after almost two years of nonstop work and just wanted to go on vacation now that he was off the clock. So on the weekend before Labor Day 1921, Arbuckle drove himself and several friends north to San Francisco. They were staying in three suites on the top floor of the luxurious St. Francis Hotel. Arbuckle planned to go clubbing with just a few friends, but he was famous among the Hollywood elite for throwing great parties and picking up the tab for anyone who showed up. As a result, he often found himself with uninvited guests. That's exactly what happened on that fateful Labor Day in 1921. In the early afternoon of Monday, September 5th, Fatty Arbuckle had a knock on his hotel suite, room 1219 in the St. Francis Hotel. He answered the door, still in his bathrobe and slippers. In front of him was a small gaggle of uninvited guests, mostly actors, models, and other film industry players, all ready for a party. Among the guests were Virginia Rappé and Maud Delmont. Virginia Rappé was a 25-year-old model and actress, and Maud Delmont was a crook with a criminal history including blackmail and running high-end brothels. It's unclear if either Arbuckle or Rappé knew this about Delmont when he let her into the suite. As guests continued to arrive, Arbuckle expressed concern that the large number of guests might alert the police to an illegal gin party. Prohibition had been passed two years earlier, and while stars could get away with drinking liquor in private, large drunken parties were harder to hide. But soon, music was playing and alcohol was flowing. Arbuckle accepted the party was happening regardless and decided to join in. While numbers for the party were never officially counted, it's estimated that there were 30 to 40 people at Arbuckle's rooms at the St. Francis that afternoon. The majority of the crowd hung out in room 1220, but doors connecting rooms 1219 and 1221 were open for most of the event. Partygoers drank, danced, and socialized. The hotel even brought up a cutting-edge record player for the guests to use. During the party, Virginia and Arbuckle definitely socialized. In fact, friends of both parties said the duo had a lot in common. He was a director and actor, 
and she was a model and actress. They'd moved in the same Hollywood circles and knew many of the same people. They'd also traveled to many of the same cities and countries, and they had both started entertainment careers in their youths. By most accounts, the two spoke as any guests at a party would, chatting for some time, then breaking away to socialize with others. At some point that afternoon, Virginia needed to use the bathroom. She tried to use the one in 1221, but she found the door locked. Rappé walked back through 1220, where Arbuckle and the others were still socializing, and into 1219 to use the bathroom there. It's unclear how long Virginia was in the bathroom. She had bad pain in her abdomen that day, and most guests agreed she had gone to the bathroom to take care of it. Not long after, around 3 p.m., Arbuckle retired to his room, 1219, and locked the door. It's unclear if he knew Virginia was still inside. Here, the stories diverge. According to the later statement given by actress Alice Blake, Arbuckle had gone into his suite and intentionally locked himself and Virginia inside alone. In Miss Blake's account, about half an hour later, Maud tried to get into the room. It was still locked, so Maud banged on the door. According to both Blake and Delmont, Arbuckle answered the door. They heard Virginia moaning and crying behind him. Arbuckle demanded that Blake and Delmont take her away. Maud gave a harrowing account of racing to Virginia's aid, only to discover that she had been brutally raped. This story was in direct opposition to Arbuckle's official statement. According to the actor, a group including Miss Rappé sat around in 1220 having drinks together. At some point, Miss Rappé became agitated. He noted that she had complained she could not breathe and was in terrible pain. She went to the bathroom to try to deal with it. Arbuckle went to check on her after a concerning amount of time had passed. Arbuckle found her still in the bathroom in even worse agony. He helped move her to the bed, where she tore off her clothes and began writhing in pain. Arbuckle sent for help, which arrived in the form of Maud Delmont. Arbuckle maintained that at no point was he alone with Virginia and that half a dozen people had witnessed the affair. As far as he knew, Delmont took Rappé away and saw to her medical care. Arbuckle checked out of the hotel the next morning, picking up the entire $600 tab for the suites, music, and food, about $9,000 today. Arbuckle hung around San Francisco with his friends for the next few days, completely unaware of Virginia's rapidly deteriorating situation. Most of our account of Virginia's last days either come from medical records or Maud Delmont. Maud's story maintained that when she finally got it to Suite 1219, she found Virginia naked on the bed. She agreed that Virginia was writhing in pain, but claimed the pain was due to having just been raped by Arbuckle. Maud moved Virginia back to their room at the Palace Hotel and called the hotel doctor. After examining Virginia, he diagnosed her with alcohol poisoning, an all-too-common affliction during Prohibition, when bootleg liquor was often contaminated with poisons like methanol. It gave literal meaning to the old cliché, drinking yourself blind. 
While Virginia hadn't gone blind, it was reasonable to assume that she had been poisoned by the illegal gin. The doctor administered morphine for the pain and left. When she awoke just past midnight on Tuesday, September 6th, Virginia had no memory prior to passing out in the bathroom of Suite 1219. She was once again in sheer agony, and once again, Maud Delmont called the hotel doctor. The first doctor wasn't available, so they sent a second. He examined Virginia and noticed her abdominal area was swollen, the obvious source of Virginia's stomach cramping. He, too, concluded that she had alcohol poisoning, administered morphine, and left. This cycle repeated at 5 a.m. Maud noted that Virginia had not urinated in over 15 hours, so the doctor also catheterized her. She produced a small amount of urine that had blood in it. However, the blood was already dark and brownish, which the doctor assured Maud meant that the blood was old. By his estimation, Virginia wasn't currently producing blood in her urine, which meant it wasn't an ongoing problem and should be fine. He gave her more morphine and left. Maud rightfully disagreed with the doctor's lackadaisical attitude and called a different doctor she knew personally. His name was Dr. Melville Rumwell. In addition to being a doctor, he was an assistant professor of surgery at Stanford University and in charge of Stanford's outpatient clinic. Dr. Rumwell agreed to take over Virginia's case. He came to the hotel and examined Virginia around 9 a.m. Despite Maud's insistence on a violent rape, Dr. Rumwell found no signs of bodily trauma. When he asked Virginia for her story, she did not recall a rape, only passing out from pain in room 1219, then waking up in agony. Virginia now reported growing pain in her abdomen and chest. After his examination, Dr. Rumwell again diagnosed Virginia with alcohol poisoning. Dr. Rumwell believed she was otherwise fine. He discharged her, recommending she use simple hot compresses on her abdomen for the pain. But Virginia did not get better. For the next two days, three nurses attended to her. Sometimes she was able to respond calmly to questions about her medical history, but at other points, the pain was so great she wasn't able to speak. Like Dr. Rumwell, the nurses suspected alcohol poisoning due to bootleg liquor. But after two days of no improvement, they had Maud call Dr. Rumwell back in. This time, Rumwell was concerned about Virginia's condition. He suspected a kidney infection and possibly a venereal disease. Around noon on Thursday, September 8th, Dr. Rumwell had Virginia admitted to a local sanitarium that specialized in obstetrics and gynecology. Virginia had to be taken by ambulance, and Maud and one of the nurses rode with her. The facility was just six blocks away, and Dr. Rumwell had staff privileges there. Wakefield Sanitarium also had two operating rooms and was equipped to handle emergency patients. Rumwell examined Virginia again, and this time diagnosed her with alcohol poisoning and a resulting kidney lesion that had become infected. He put her on an IV drip to restore water and electrolytes. He also put her back on morphine. 
But she was deteriorating rapidly. By 9.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 8th, Virginia's heartbeat was elevated. Her abdomen was swollen and expanded, and she was in horrific pain. Dr. Rumwell and two additional doctors examined her, this time concurring that she had inflammation of the peritoneum, or abdominal lining. This was typically caused by a ruptured fallopian tube or bladder. The doctors also agreed that in Virginia's weakened state, there was no way she'd survive surgery. They gave her antibiotics to try to fight off the infection. Maud began calling Virginia's friends and loved ones to let them know that the young actress and model's health condition was dire. She also called in a priest to administer last rites. At 1.30 p.m. on Friday, September 9th, Virginia Rappé died. While the sanitarium did not have an autopsy room, they moved Virginia's body to an operating table in order to examine her. Dr. William Ophels conducted the examination. He found that Virginia had a ruptured bladder, which was likely the source of her swollen abdominal lining. He also noted that she showed no signs of sexual assault, but did have several bruises on her arms and legs. Strangely, Dr. Ophels removed the bladder and female reproductive organs. This was not protocol. When a second doctor, Shelby Strange, came to complete a second autopsy, he had to get the organs from Ophels. They had been put in jars. Dr. Strange noted this was odd, but nevertheless reported similar results. The bladder was ruptured and the cause of death was peritonitis, the medical term for swollen abdominal lining. He also recorded 11 bruises on her arms and thighs. However, his autopsy differed in one major way. He noted that spontaneously ruptured bladders are rare, and that it was more likely that rupture was caused by external tearing. The tearing would have been external to the bladder, but internal to Virginia since there were no surface wounds. Maud Delmont, of course, had an answer. Arbuckle had violently raped Virginia, rupturing her bladder. She contacted the police with her story. The day after Virginia's death on Saturday, September 10, 1921, San Francisco police detained Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle for the murder of Virginia Rappé. In a moment, a hungry prosecutor uses Arbuckle to make his career. Now, back to the story. On Labor Day weekend of 1921, Hollywood's most famous actor had planned a private getaway for himself and a few friends to the luxurious St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. However, on Monday afternoon, unexpected guests showed up at Arbuckle's Three Suites, and an impromptu party began. Young actress Virginia Rappé was among the guests. Four days later, Arbuckle was being held for her murder. Police hadn't even had time to begin their investigations, but before the weekend was over, papers all over the country were weighing in on the story. Arbuckle was the most famous actor in America, and he'd just been arrested on murder charges. This was the story of the century, which meant, factual or not, it would sell papers. 
This approach was known as yellow journalism and was characterized by short articles with questionable facts and sensational headlines, much like today's tabloids. At the time, New York had 14 major newspapers, all competing for sales. If you wanted to stay in business, you had to give your customers something the other papers weren't selling, even rumors. As a result, papers would pay top dollar to informants to get the latest scoop. The relatively new telegraph technology allowed informants from all over the country to send the information back to whatever paper was paying them. Because of the competition and good pay, informants were often a step ahead of the police. So much so that, in fact, journalists tipped off Arbuckle hours before the police ever arrested him on murder suspicions. He knew he was innocent and didn't skip town. But when police arrived on his doorstep later that morning, it was hardly a surprise. The papers were a rumor mill gone amok, with facts and evidence pushed to the wayside. Almost immediately, details were invented and added to the story. A particularly popular one was that Arbuckle shattered a bottle over Rappé's abdomen, which led to her bladder rupturing. No source was ever given for the bottle detail, but it was reprinted over and over. Sometimes the details changed. For example, papers disagreed on whether it was a Coca-Cola or champagne bottle. Working-class Americans ate the story up. It didn't matter that there was never any bottle found in room 1219, and Rappé had no lacerations on her abdomen, let alone cuts that punctured her bladder. The story had found an audience. It was as good as fact. Overnight, Arbuckle became a scapegoat for everything the American public hated about the Jazz Age. Alcohol, violence, scandal, and drugs. Part of the reason this image of Arbuckle stuck may have been because it wasn't entirely fabricated. He, like many Hollywood stars, always had a stash of illegal liquor and enjoyed partying. He was also a known drunk. However, this wasn't all moral debauchery. Arbuckle, like many actors of the time, had suffered an onset injury and was prescribed heroin for the pain. Heroin is cripplingly addictive. In an attempt to mitigate this addiction and heroin's adverse effects, Arbuckle switched to liquor, but was soon an alcoholic instead. His condition was in no way helped by the party-centric lifestyle of most 1920s entertainers. Arbuckle had started his career in vaudeville stage shows around 1910. The hours were long, the pay was mediocre, and the work was grueling. Parties were a way to blow off steam so the performers could face the next grueling day. And this culture carried over to the movies. Arbuckle had transitioned to working on Keystone Cop comedy movies in the early 1910s. There were no unions or work laws yet, and films often worked actors for 16 or even 20-hour days. In between these intense shoots, actors tended to party hard to unwind. Unfortunately for Arbuckle, he was one of the world's first superstars, which also meant he was one of the most scrutinized people on the planet. It also didn't help that Arbuckle was physically large. 
He was tall and weighed close to 300 pounds. Prejudice against overweight people had led to some of his comedy's success, as he often made fun of himself. But it also contributed to the depiction of him as an amoral, deviant villain. And the public ran with this exaggerated depiction. Soon, people were protesting Arbuckle's movies. Within 48 hours of being detained, several theaters across the country pulled Arbuckle's films, and Paramount canceled the Arbuckle screenings at its Paramount Parade event. For his part, Arbuckle stuck to his story. He had not been alone with Miss Rappé. He had not injured her. Last he'd seen her, she was in pain and hysterical, and two women had taken her away. He was forced to watch the media destroy his career from a jail cell. Seemingly overnight, Arbuckle had fallen from beloved comedic icon to public enemy number one. San Francisco District Attorney Matthew Brady nearly fell over himself in his scramble to prosecute the case. He was a well-known attorney and was gunning to run for governor in the near future. Prosecuting a national headline case was the perfect way for him to get name recognition and support for a successful campaign. Bringing down a national villain would surely bolster turnout at the polls. Within hours of taking on the case, Brady promised he'd bring Arbuckle down for rape and murder. The grand jury hearing was held the Tuesday after Labor Day, 1921. The grand jury's sole job was to determine if there was enough evidence for a trial. Brady arrived at the hearing confident he had a murder case in the bag. But it quickly became apparent that Maud Delmont's story had some gaping holes. During her hour on the stand, she contradicted herself repeatedly. She also admitted she'd had between eight and ten drinks during the party, meaning she'd been quite drunk when she entered room 1219. Furthermore, it was impossible for her to have seen everything she claimed to have first-hand knowledge of because she had been locked in the bathroom of room 1221 having sex with another man just before collecting Virginia from room 1219. Brady worked hard to get Maud off the stand before she admitted to that publicly, but she let it slip. Meanwhile, his other two witnesses, Alice Blake and another actress named Z. Prevost, took the stand with weak stories that contradicted their original accounts. To his dismay, the grand jury came to a decision in the early hours of Wednesday morning. They did recommend a trial, but only for manslaughter, not murder. Meanwhile, protest against Arbuckle was only growing, especially among women's rights groups. They were outside the courthouse every day, often by the thousands. Brady, who wanted very much to win public votes, made a risky decision. He ignored the recommendation of the grand jury and proceeded with murder charges. Brady went a step farther and requested that the proceedings be held in a women's court. These rooms limited spectators to women in order to provide respect and safety for sensitive cases like rape. He wanted to attract an audience that hated Arbuckle, who would call for the worst sentence possible in the papers. This was terrible news for Arbuckle. 
Besides setting him up to face trial in an unnecessarily hostile environment, Brady was pushing for a much worse sentence than was legally recommended. And Brady was hiding something. The hearing made it clear that Maud Delmont's story was largely made up, but he still touted her testimony as a smoking gun. Because of the murder accusation, Arbuckle was legally not allowed to be released on bail. This meant he had to remain in jail, constantly hounded by inmates and journalists through the end of the trial. It was clear that Brady wasn't trying to solve the case. He was trying to bring down Hollywood's biggest star, no matter what it took, to make himself look like a hero. In a moment, the trial of the century threatens to bring down a comedy legend. Now back to the story. Not two weeks after Virginia Rappé's mysterious death, Arbuckle had fallen from America's favorite star to most hated villain. Countless theaters across the country had pulled Arbuckle's films. Even Paramount had canceled screenings at its own events. A theater in Wyoming made national news when cowboys shot up a screen still daring to play an Arbuckle film. He was held up as a symbol of justice. Paramount halted payments to Arbuckle indefinitely, and Universal Studios became the first of several studios to add a morality clause to its contracts so that it could legally drop anyone involved in future scandals. On September 22, 1921, the preliminary phase of the trial proceeded in the women's court. For five days, witnesses were called in and questioned so that the judge could determine whether murder charges were, in fact, legally viable. Maude Delmont was not among the witnesses called. Even at the time, people speculated it was because there was something fishy in her testimony. Brady was hoping to push the case through even without her. He was only partially successful. On September 28th, the judge made his decision. Like the grand jury, he agreed there was not enough information to try Arbuckle for murder. The charge was downgraded to manslaughter. Arbuckle wept openly. The downgraded charge meant he was finally allowed to leave jail. He returned home to L.A. where he had much more privacy, but was still tailed round the clock by journalists for the next two months. On November 18, 1921, the trial began. Again, Maud Delmont was absent. It turned out that Maud had a history of blackmail, extortion, and petty crime. Even if Brady could coach her, she'd hurt the believability of his case. Furthermore, Dr. Rumwell, the doctor Delmont had brought in to tend to Rappé, had been arrested for performing an illegal autopsy on Rappé's body. Maud's story was looking worse and worse. Even so, Brady did his damnedest to bring Roscoe Arbuckle to justice. After two weeks, the jury was in a complete deadlock. The judge had to pronounce the case a mistrial and set a second date. Arbuckle wasn't off the hook yet, and neither were the movie studios. They'd watched Arbuckle's sales plummet, and the movie industry as a whole had come under fire since the case. So on December 8, 1921, 
A group of 12 studio heads got together to come up with a plan for how to move forward. Protest groups had been trying to shut down the movies almost as soon as motion picture work began. 25 years earlier, in 1896, Thomas Edison's 47-second film, The Kiss, became one of the very first publicly screened motion pictures and one of the very first sources of public outcry. In this short piece, a man and a woman kiss. That's it. Immediately, editorial writers called not just for its censorship, but for police action against the film's supposedly loose morals. In 1906, official investigations began to try and prove the negative impact motion pictures had on the conduct of the working class. Within a year, Chicago City Council passed the country's first film censorship law. Other cities, including San Francisco and Los Angeles, followed suit. Between 1909 and 1916, four states assembled boards responsible for censoring films. In one case, a man was even arrested by the U.S. government for treason because he made a film that was critical of the U.S. and its allies during World War I. Film censorship was serious business. But the film industry pushed back. In early 1916, interested parties within the National Board of Review of Motion Pictures banded together to focus the organization on looking at various state legal requirements for censorship, then pre-screen films for possible problems. But it wasn't a foolproof solution. In 1915, D.W. Griffith had released America's first feature film, Birth of a Nation. New human rights groups, including the NAACP, called for the censorship of this movie due to its depiction of race. Some communities banned the film outright to try to prevent it from sparking local race riots. The state of Ohio banned the film entirely. The producers fought back, and the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The verdict came down unanimously. Film was the product of a business and therefore not protected under the First Amendment. States and communities could legally ban films. This changed everything for the studios. Banned movies meant no revenue. They had to change strategies. In 1916, five years before Arbuckle would be arrested for the murder of Virginia Rappay, the film industry formed a lobbying group to petition Congress. They convened for years until March of 1921, when, just months before Arbuckle would become a murder suspect, they issued their 13 points, promises to avoid specific offensive content in exchange for legal protection. Studios were hopeful that these measures would protect sales and keep more conservative audiences happy. However, they hadn't prepared for the effects of personal scandal. Six months after passing the 13 points, Fatty Arbuckle was arrested for the murder of Virginia Rappay. The effects were devastating on the studios. With over 200 projects with his name on them, Fatty Arbuckle was one of the most famous people in American filmmaking, probably only second to Charlie Chaplin. Within a month of the arrest, every theater in the entire U.S. pulled all Fatty Arbuckle properties. All of them. The studios had to adapt. 
especially after Arbuckle's first trial in early November ended in a mistrial. As Fatty awaited a second trial, the studios planned action. At another meeting on December 8, 1921, 12 studio heads co-wrote a letter to Postmaster General William Hayes asking for his help. They offered him the position of Chairman of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Listeners may recall Hayes from our earlier episode on the murder of William Desmond Taylor. But it wasn't obvious if he'd take the job. At the time, Hayes' position in the presidential cabinet gave him immense influence over American life. Hayes had the power to approve or censor major circulated publications in the U.S. Hayes had also been the Republican national chairman in 1918. He was very well connected in the Republican-controlled Congress and across the country. Quick reminder, in the early 20th century, the Republican Party was considered the Liberal Party and the Democratic Party tended to be conservative. However, in early 1922, only a few weeks after having been offered the chairman position and just as Arbuckle's second trial began, Hayes made national front-page news by leaving the presidential cabinet and accepting the job as chairman of the MPPDA. Hayes had previously refused to touch censorship cases and was famous for approving almost any publication. On top of that, he was a successful politician. Why would he change careers and stances for the movies? In a word, money. Hayes made $12,000 annually as the Postmaster General. Hollywood had offered him a whopping $100,000 a year, or $1.25 million today. It was clear that the film industry was seriously concerned about the long-term consequences of the Arbuckle case, so much so that they pooled funds across multiple studios. They asked Chairman Hayes to create a comprehensive plan to save the industry from the common perception of overpaid, immoral actors and actresses corrupting the average youth with their licentiousness. He would eventually produce the Hayes Code, which would essentially act as a censorship code in Hollywood until the 1960s. Barely a week into Hayes' new position, a second scandal rocked the nation the murder of Paramount director William Desmond Taylor, which you may recall from our earlier episode on the subject. This only exacerbated arguments against the film industry. Meanwhile, Arbuckle's second trial once again ended in a hung jury in early 1922, sending Arbuckle almost immediately into a third trial. By this point, Fatty Arbuckle had been through two trials, praying the third wouldn't convict him. His nerves were utterly shot, and his reputation was decimated. He braced himself for a third trial that spring, worried that as his reputation was destroyed across the country, the jury's opinion of him would be completely biased. But thankfully, despite District Attorney Brady's smear campaign, he couldn't cobble enough evidence together to convict. In April of 1922, Arbuckle was finally acquitted for the murder of Virginia Rappay. But more importantly, the trial had shown what a flimsy case had been brought against Arbuckle. He wasn't just acquitted. 
some of the public were finally beginning to believe in his innocence. Arbuckle left his trial to the sound of applause. For a few blissful days, things were finally looking up. But the papers weren't so forgiving. They were still going hard at the image of him as a wild, drunken rapist with a broken bottle in his hand. Studio executives realized even if Arbuckle was innocent, his reputation was too damaged to ever recover. And they weren't wrong. In the wake of his acquittal, attempts to release two new Arbuckle films, Gasoline Gus and Crazy to Marry, were met with protests, calls for censorship, and brutal editorial criticisms. Arbuckle films were no longer selling. That was probably why, in March or April of 1922, film executives Joseph Skank and Adolf Zucker asked Postmaster General Hayes to officially ban Arbuckle from the film industry. In Hayes' memoir, published about 30 years after the Arbuckle case, Hayes stated that despite having hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up in Arbuckle films, the executives wanted to cut their losses and show the public they were committed to being clean. Soon, Arbuckle was a social outcast, left behind by the industry he helped build. But despite his acquittal, there were still lingering questions about Arbuckle's case. Namely, did he do it? And if not, why was Maude Delmont so invested? Pieces of the case were fishy from the start. For one, Maude Delmont was far from an upstanding citizen. She had a previous criminal record as a blackmailer, extortionist, and manager of sex workers. It's not clear what Delmont's relationship was to Rappé. It's also not clear why, despite her suffering severe pain that required morphine, no one moved Rappé to a hospital for three days. In fact, after the first day, she had nothing for the pain except hot compresses. This is now seen as cruel and even torturous. After that, Rappé was taken to a sanitarium, not a hospital. Delmont and Dr. Rumwell insisted this was due to the sanitarium's proximity to the hotel. But the real reason may be much darker. Records indicate that on September 7th, while Rappé was dying from an untreated bladder infection, Maud Delmont had sent telegrams to two friends that read, quote, We have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make money out of him. Maud had a history of extortion and was clearly looking to somehow profit off Arbuckle. Evidence suggests that she also had a secret on Virginia Rappé. Rappé was performing sex work on the side. Maud might have even been her madam. To make matters worse, Rappé was pregnant at the time of her death, likely from one of her johns. Maud's plan is not fully apparent, largely because it seemingly went awry. There are rumors that prior to her death, Virginia Rappé had asked Fatty Arbuckle for money to help pay for an abortion. There's no information on what kind of relationship the two might have had prior to the party in room 1220, but it does seem to have been above board. Therefore, it's likely that Maud Delmont knew about the pregnancy and the desired abortion and wanted some of the money for herself. 
Many believe she planned to extort Virginia and Arbuckle in exchange for staying silent about the abortion. It doesn't seem like Arbuckle was the father, but if he helped pay for it, he'd be implicated. When Rappé died, the plan was dead in the water. But never one to miss a beat, Delmont hoped she could still slap Arbuckle with rape charges and get money out of him some way. It's most likely that she planned to ask for money in exchange for not testifying against Arbuckle, although her exact intentions were never made clear. This theory is further supported by the fact that she brought in her own contact, Dr. Rumwell, to take over Rappé's care. In addition to failing to properly diagnose Virginia for three days, he was later arrested for performing her autopsy illegally. He defended himself by saying there was no one else available and he'd gotten the go-ahead from the coroner, but it didn't stand up in court. Instead, it's likely he and the other attending doctors either attempted an abortion, which actually led to Virginia's death, or that they removed the fetus and Virginia's reproductive organs during the illegal autopsy. Either way, the doctors are believed to have been in on covering up Virginia's sex work and pregnancy, as well as Maud's scheme. Furthermore, it's possible that Paramount knew about the situation and wanted to cover up any further scandal. Virginia Rappé was also an actress with Paramount. An unplanned pregnancy and abortion would cause yet another scandal they couldn't afford. If this is the case, it would make sense that they let Arbuckle take the full fall of the trial while trying to protect what was left of Rappé's reputation. In some ways, justice won out. Arbuckle was eventually acquitted in April 1922. Hayes initially banned him from the industry under advisement from the studios, but reinstated him eight months later. Arbuckle was forced to change his stage name in order to secure some directing jobs. It helped that he was very experienced and that major filmmakers such as Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin vouched for him. But Arbuckle couldn't alter his appearance. All of America knew the six-foot, nearly 300-pound actor's face, so he could never again be in front of the camera. Arbuckle tried to remain optimistic, but his alcoholism spiraled. His second wife left him, and then his third. But he kept making movies and kept recovering. Over a decade after the Rappé scandal, in 1933, Warner Brothers finally offered him a feature film contract as an actor. Arbuckle was quoted as saying, that was the best day of my life. However, he would never get to enjoy his return. Arbuckle died that night of a heart attack at age 46. Fatty Arbuckle's impact on the film industry was enormous. He mentored and collaborated with comedy giants like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. He went on to inspire other overweight comedians such as John Belushi, Benny Hill, John Candy, and Chris Farley. His trial changed the face of Hollywood, ushering in an age of self-censorship as studios struggled to remain viable and clean up their public image. 
While it's still impossible to definitively say whether Arbuckle did or did not rape or murder Virginia Rappé, most historians believe that he did not. Instead, he and Rappé were both victims of yellow journalism, prohibition era villainizing of anyone deviant from conservative values, and the film industry's need to stay economically viable. While Arbuckle and Rappé were not the first people to be crushed by the Hollywood machine, they also wouldn't be the last. Soon, scandal fixers would be a staple of the film industry, and the scandals would only become more outrageous. Next week, we'll dive into fixers who often preserved careers at the expense of ruining lives. But for Fatty Arbuckle, one false accusation was enough. His power, his success, and his career were utterly ruined, likely by someone trying to make a quick buck off his downfall. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back with more on The Dark Side of Hollywood. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>